Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. I've started using a different Bible than, than I normally use, and now I can't find anything. I can't find the books because it feels like it's in the wrong place according to the thick... Yeah, so anyway, if you see me flipping around, that's why. All right, chapter 9, a little bit of re- review from chapter 9. Chapter 9, anybody remember what chapter 9 was about? Don't look. Donkeys and Saul. (laughs) Donkeys. um, Kish's donkeys, right? So Saul is working on his father's farm. Donkeys are lost. Kish sends Saul after these donkeys. And we, we realize that that is the providence of God ordained so that what happens? Saul and Samuel would meet together, and God reveals to Saul to Samuel that um, in that day that along would come a man, and he would be the one who you anoint king over Israel. So all of this is arranged to these ordinary events, these um, <clears throat> uh, what we might even be tempted to uh, call annoying events, lost animals, and it's used to arrange this meeting. Um, so Saul is, is not an ordinary man in, the, in a few senses, right? How is he not an ordinary man? He's big. He's tall. He's a shoulder above, it says, all the other men. And uh, we, we can, we can uh, understand that to to mean that they're taking confidence in his stature, perhaps in a way that they shouldn't, right? But they, they're taking confidence in the fact that he's, he's, he appears to at least be a warrior. And, um, and so they're, they're looking on the outward man, whereas you know that God looks upon the heart. Okay, and so right, at the, right when we meet Saul, it begins describing his appearance, so that that lesson sinks in, so that we begin thinking, okay, how is, you know, what is important? Is it the, the inward man, the character of a man, or is it the appearance of, of a man that um, leads? It's certainly not appearance. Uh, and so he is chosen, and chapter 9 describes all the events leading up to <clears throat> Saul and Samuel meeting. And then chapter 10 now is the anointing and the exhortation of Saul by Samuel. And there there are some, well, let's read it. Let's read it. 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, 
and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of, the, of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? The man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. Thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distress. Yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families. And the the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller 
than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! And Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched, went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. This is the word of the Lord. So first of all, we see this anointing of Samuel here, I mean of Saul, by Samuel. Samuel takes oil, pours it on his head, kisses him. A very uh, meaningful gesture, right? A, a, a gesture of, of commitment, a gesture um, showing of a deference to authority. But also placing, placing this oil upon him to anoint him for the work of the Lord. Um, and then following this he describes very specifically what's coming. And so this is Samuel acting as a prophet in the sense of um, predicting what's coming. I mean, he's getting details down to how many loaves of bread, how many men, it's going to be at this place, it's going to be by an oak tree. All these things play out. And, um, And he follows this path, and it turns out to be now, what stands out to me in this is what it says about Saul, what it says about his change, what it says about the Holy Spirit coming upon him, what it says about him prophesying. Why does that stand out? Because we know the rest of the story. What do we know about Saul? didn't act like it. He did not act like the Lord was upon him or that he had the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, we'll look at a few of those things about Saul's behavior uh, in a moment. But look at verse 6. This is what it says happened to Saul. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you will prophesy. um, Wait, where is it? Sorry. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them, with the prophets, and be changed into another man. That's strong language, right? He's going to be changed man. That's the way we talk about, you know, somebody who who repents of a long-standing habitual sin, right? He's a changed man. Or somebody who goes something through something traumatic, right? He's a changed man. Um, God has worked on him. Or somebody we know who is a notorious sinner like the Saul of the New Testament and who, cha- who God, God confronts 
changes and, and everybody was afraid of Paul because they thought he was the old Saul and yet he was a changed man. And that's how he's described. Verse 9. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's a changed man. God changed his heart. That's how it's described. And so here's what I want to say about this. We... we um, well, let's skip ahead. I'll come back to that. What was Saul's what was Saul's end? What do we know about him? Let's re- let's rehearse what we know about him in the next 5 or 6 chapters of 1 Samuel. What what characterizes Saul in the upcoming chapters? Well, yes. Ultimately, he kills himself. Right? Now, there are two different accounts of the death of Saul, and that has to be worked through. One, it seems as if his sword bearer kills him. Another, it seems that he fell on his own sword. But we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. But nonetheless, he he ends his life. Okay? What else? Okay. God takes the kingdom away from him, and it's not like he's died. He is still very much alive. God takes the kingdom away from him, and along comes whom? King David, who is anointed. Okay, when when David was uh, around Samuel and ministering to Samuel in his household with music, we forget that King David um, did that did music therapy. For Saul. I mean, that's what it was. Um, it calmed him. And so, so here is, here, but, but um, an evil spirit sent from God, is what it says. An evil spirit sent from God comes to, to Saul, and that's when Saul begins trying to kill King David, put a spear through him. Yes. What stands out more than anything is not the obedience of Saul in the coming chapters. It's his preempting of the word of God so that he could do his own things. Disobedience characterizes Saul in the coming chapters, not obedience. Um, So Saul's end is a disobedient sinner attempting to kill his replacement who ends up killing himself possessed with an evil spirit. It's bad fruit. That is bad fruit, isn't it? And yet, here in this chapter, we've read all those things about the Holy Spirit has come upon him, God changed his heart, and he was a changed man. All right, how do we reconcile these things? Well, first of all, let's read. I want to, chapter 13, skip ahead. I just want to look at a few of these. Chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly, right? He, he's to wait to make the offering. He's told to wait to make an offering. And what, he, what can't he do? He can't wait. He doesn't wait for Samuel. 
Saul is not authorized to present offerings, right? Not being a priest. And yet he can't wait. And so he goes ahead and offers those burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So he's broken God's law. It is right there that the determination is made that God would search, God would bring forward a man after his own heart. Um, 14, chapter 14 at verse 44. <laughs> <clears throat> You remember what happened, Saul has a son named Jonathan, and Saul makes an order, and he says, no no warrior is to eat anything this day, right? And Jonathan comes across what? Some honey. He puts his staff in the honey, eats some of the honey, and then Saul, Saul does what? In the end, he relents, but he comes out saying, you're going to die. You know, there's, there's very little mercy. He's going to be tight on this one, even though it's his son. And even though after Jonathan ate, what does it say about him? He was refreshed, right? All the people needed refreshment because they had been fighting. And yet Saul had made this decree that was not merciful. And then when his son broke it, he was even willing to kill his own son. Son, Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people intercede and say, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. The people are saying to the king, far from it. This should not happen. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. They had to rescue Jonathan from Saul. Okay, 15, 10, and 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Right? He has turned back from following me. That's what it says about Saul. He has turned back from following me. He has forsaken God. He has turned his own back on following him. 1521. Um, this is, you know, this is the part. If you forget all the rest of 1 Samuel, this is the part of 1 Samuel. You remember the bleeding of the sheep, right? Um, what does Saul do? In this instance, he, be, he blames the people. Rather than taking responsibility as the king for the actions, he blames the people. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I did what God said. The people brought back some of the spoil. 
which we were supposed to devote to the band, devote to destruction. And then Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. More bad fruit from Saul. Now, let me read the end of chapter 15 for you. And you ask yourself whether this is repentance. Right? We think of, we think of wicked sinners who repent in Scripture, don't we? Uh, King Manasseh repents and knew the Lord at the end of his life, although he destroyed the kingdom of Israel. And when Josiah came in to reform it, God says, no, Manasseh's filled this, this nation with blood. It's too late. Right? But Nasser repented at the end of his life. Um, there are other examples in the kings who repent. Characters that we don't think repented. Now, is this repentance? Then Saul said to Samuel, this is chapter 15 at 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and go and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag and you know what happens from there. Samuel actually does the job that Saul was supposed to do and hacks Agag into pieces. What I would, I would characterize that as tainted repentance. Why is his repentance tainted? Well, think about this. Contrast it with the repentance you know of the next king. Contrast it with the repentance you know of King David. When David, I mean, we have a psalm about the repentance of David concerning his sin with Bathsheba, right? That psalm of repentance of of King David. And And he says in that, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. And ultimately, David is concerned about the reputation of God in his repentance. He's concerned about God getting glory in his repentance. It's not even primarily about himself. It's about dishonoring the name of God. What about David's other great sin? Do you remember how that plays out? 
What's David's other great sin? The census. Right? He wanted to have a number so he could boast in his own strength. Right? And God judges him for that. And, and then what is, he, what is he given? He's given three choices. Seven years of famine, three months fleeing from foes, or three days of pestilence from the Lord. And David says, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So even what he chooses has in mind the mercy of God. It's going to be awful, right? Many fall that day because of his sin. But he has in mind the mercy of God even in choosing the punishment for the sin that he committed. And so I would say his repentance is about God's honor more than it is about his own honor or his own relief or his own skin. It's about God's honor. But what about Saul? Saul's like, come on back. Come back with me, Samuel, so that I might be honored before the people. Right, Come back with me so I can save face. Because if you don't go back with me, how is that going to look? It's going to look terrible. Now Samuel does relent and goes with him, and it says he worshiped the Lord. Um, so what do we make of all this? We have options with in understanding Saul. We have a few options. We could say, okay, it appears because of the the testimony of chapter 10, it appears that Saul was a regenerate man who became unregenerate. Is that a good option? No. Or he was... Simply an unregenerate man all of his life. And that's how we should describe him from beginning to end. Again, that doesn't feel like a good option because it doesn't do justice to what it says in chapter 10. And so what I say is the Holy Spirit did work on Saul. The Holy Spirit sovereignly blessed Saul. Gave him the Gave him gifts fit for a king. He came down and he prophesied. And that was the work of the Holy Spirit. But what he didn't give Saul was a regenerate heart. Now that's a category we don't much think about. The the Holy Spirit working on somebody in a way that doesn't lead to salvation. But that is a category that was acknowledged by most of our Reformed forefathers. Owen says this. John Owen, in his book on the Holy Spirit, says this. Whatever the Holy Spirit does, he does of his own free will. Don't forget that the sovereign spirit is the sovereign spirit. Right? He is God Almighty. He does his, what, what he pleases. The Holy Spirit does what he pleases. But listen to this. He does it because he chooses to do it. The good pleasure of his will is seen in all of... All the goodness, grace, love, power he shows toward us, all the work 
that the Holy Spirit does is governed by His sovereign will, which no one can resist, Romans 9.19, and by His infinite wisdom. His revealed will apparently may be resisted. And this, Owen gets into the difference between the, the revealed and the, the um, decretive will of God. When the gospel is preached and people are called to repent, His revealed will is made known, but His secret will may be that He does not intend to bring them to repentance. He does not will to grant them the gift of repentance. So in refusing to repent, they resist his revealed will, but fulfill his secret will. And he he cites Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, John 12, 40, and 41, Acts 28, Romans 11. It is the same with all his works. In some, listen to this, he, the Holy Spirit, may enlighten their minds and bring conviction of sin to their souls, but not do his work of regeneration in them, without which they cannot see the kingdom of God. In others, he makes all his works to result in their final and full salvation. And this is what Paul teaches concerning spiritual gifts. See 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit gives his gifts according to his own sovereign will. And what he gave to Saul was prophecy, worship, some sort of change, but not a regenerate heart. Calvin says this, when God wished to put Saul over the kingdom, he formed him as a new man. This is the reason why Plato, alluding to the Homeric legend, says that king's sons are born with some distinguishing mark. For God, in providing for the human race, often endows with a heroic nature those destined to command. In other words, Calvin is saying he gave him like earthly things, not spiritual good. He became, he gave him gifts for kingship, right? Just like natural men everywhere may be blessed with certain gifts, right? We, we, we see courage in many people who are devoid of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's still a gift from God, right? That's still a gift of God's common grace. We see, we see tenderness and love among those who have not the Holy Spirit. And yet, they've been given that gift. But what makes this so hard is it says that the Holy Spirit came upon him and changed him. And that's all the language we use when we think of regeneration. But I don't think we necessarily have to in this case. Um... Augustine said repentance, you know, if, we, if we're going to go on repentance, the fact that he came back to repentance. Can't we say, okay, doesn't that prove, yes, he may have sinned. What's the difference? David sinned in his life, right? David sinned in his life and repented. It's the same with Saul. But Augustine says repentance damns many. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is there is such a thing as counterfeit repentance. You can feel much anguish, but not repent. You can, you can resolve to stop sinning, and yet never repent. Right? You, you, may, you may even leave a sin behind. You may, you may put it away, and yet not repent of the sin. You simply exchange that sin for another, or something along those lines. True repentance, says Watson, is when the, the acts of sin cease from the infusion of a principle of grace 
as the air ceases to be dark from the infusion of light. Right? True repentance comes that way. Edwards, in The Religious Affections, concludes that the genuineness of one's faith is most demonstra- demonstrated by what? By a desire for holiness. A desire to honor the holiness of God. Right? We, we apprehend the greatness of God and the astonishing mercy He has for sinners in Jesus Christ. And our love, not our burden, is to be holy as He is holy. Right? That desire for whole, real holiness. And, and, and holiness is not merely living a life of gratitude for His grace. But our holiness is part of knowing, loving, and pursuing Him. Um, think of this. I'll try and wrap this up into a tight bundle in a moment. Or not. Um, I, I think of I think of the um, I think of the repentance of some people I've known. Repentance that embraces the consequence of their actions in a very costly way because they have a newfound honor for God, respect for God. They'll do anything in order to have that clear conscience. A man, uh, a man I knew, Todd, turned himself in after years of sinning um, in, in not providing for his own children. And he finally came to faith, came to convictions, and then went, went and turned himself in to the, the police and faced two years in jail for that, for that action. He could have remained anonymous, right? He could, have, he could have been skirting around the laws he had been doing. But when he came to faith, he accepted the consequences. He feared God. He wanted to honor God. And what an honor it is now for him to testify to the greatness of God through those actions. You know, what, what an example that is to us. It's the opposite of Saul. Saul was protecting his reputation in feigned repentance. This man just destroyed his reputation but wanted to be right with God. It's different. Um... And then there's this, the, the, the whole contrast we, we have played out in the rest of 1 Samuel, the, the contrast between Saul and David. The contrast between Saul and David is one of rejection and replacement, the one of, of God's anointed being rejected for disobedience and the anointed of the Lord coming in to replace him, who is, who is called what? A man after God's own heart, though yet a sinner. A man after God's own heart. And we see that played out even in David's repentance, right? Um, and so what I see, what I, what I want to emphasize here is that we, we, get, um, we have a tendency to think of too clean of categories in the work of the Holy Spirit. What... What things can the unregenerate man do that are astonishing? 
Now, I'm thinking of a particular passage that sort of locks this down. What can the unregenerate do? And the passage starts with, Lord, Lord. What can the unregenerate man do? The unregenerate man can prophesy, which is what Saul does. Cast out demons, perform miracles, right? That's what the unregenerate man can do, but God is sovereign over those things, right? And yet, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And Jesus says to them, I never knew you, right? I did not know you. And so they're extraordinary things. Um, what does it say in Hebrews chapter 4? Is anybody thinking of Hebrews chapter 4? Extraordinary things, right? Hebrews chapter 4 says this. Um, I'm thinking of six, sorry. Where is it? Help me out. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Either we say that's somebody be, be going from regenerate to unregenerate, which we reject because God, when he elects, it's effectual, right? And, and it's, it's lasting. And so here is the unregenerate man being, being given a taste of the things even of the Holy Spirit. Now, okay, so, so let me summarize this way. If you take the view that Saul was regenerate, then, then you, you're going to kill the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of election. If you say that he was regenerate and then falls away, then you're killing justification. If you, say, if you take the view that Saul was regenerate and spent the balance of his days in sin... Right? He was just a sinner, man. Relax. He, he came to faith. He sinned the rest of his life. There was no fruit. There was decreasing fruit. Well, then you've denied sanctification. Right? That God, when he draws us, calls us into holiness, and we add to, add to holiness by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you must hold, you know... Um, I think you must hold that he was unregenerate but had non-salvific works of the Holy Spirit upon him. I just don't think there's any way around it. The Holy Spirit does extraordinary things even in the unregenerate and decides in his sovereign will, he blows about where he pleases, right? And he births again those whom he chooses and yet the Holy Spirit does extraordinary things that don't lead to that. And extraordinary things even with people. 
Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What things in 1 Corinthians 13 can a man do, and yet if he doesn't have faith, they're nothing. What's that? Speak with the tongues of angels. Speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love. I become a noisy gong, clanging simulator. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and, I, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Right? If you don't have the love of the Holy Spirit poured out in your hearts, that love that regenerates, right? There are still amazing works that can be done. Now, they, they are not done to the glory of God. There's much more that we would say about this, but... But here, here, Saul has given the, was given the tongues of men and of angels, and yet that is not proof of him being regenerate. And so I say he's unregenerate, but there were extraordinary works done upon him, and that's what explains the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Not for his regeneration, but for these works that he would do as a king. Normal, normal works. Now, how does this help us? What does this matter? This seems all very theoretical. How does this help you in your witness? How does this help you in your own self-examination? How does this help you in, in um, having discernment with other people? I mean, is there any application of these things there? Well, one, it makes me think that we are often desperate to see the proof of somebody's faith and their regeneration, right? We're so desperate that we'll take, like, no fruit as being, like, enough, right? Well, they made a profession, right? They've made a profession, and we'll say, you know, they're in. And yet, there's no real fruit of repentance. There's no growth in faith. There's no commitment to the Lord. There's no honoring of him. There's no fear, right? But, but we can grasp at straws at times. And this sort of makes us pause and say, no, we want, we want to see real fruit, right? It also, it also pushes me to say, persevere in your witness with people. They may demonstrate things that seem extraordinary, but they can be faking it. But that doesn't mean God won't work, right? That doesn't mean God won't work down the road. Keep witnessing, keep sharing with your own family, right? Keep persevering in these things. God may work salvation, but we, have a, we, have, we so want to accept the counterfeit that we just stop witnessing with people. And accept very little of a testimony of faith, right? Very, almost nothing. And it's because we, we have compassion, right? We want to see people believe. We want to see them. We want, we want to see them come to faith in Jesus. And yet so often people, people share with me as a pastor what, what their loved ones said to them. And what, how it encouraged them. And, and often I'm thinking, okay, that's, that is something. It's good. They've testified to some, some truth about Jesus. But then there are other times where I'm saying, wow, that's not very much. 
And I have to figure out what I say with my mouth after that. Wow, that's not, that's not very much. I, I see your heart. I know you love them. But that can be faked as, as easy as sneezing. You know. And so we, we do want to look for a, a tender, robust, fruitful faith in those. And so, so what I'm saying is, um, I, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Persevere in your witness. Um, do not easily accept, but don't easily, do not easily accept and stop Stop caring for people and sharing the word of God so that they might come to a living faith. Um, Saul, Saul stands also as an extraordinary example of, of this work of the Holy Spirit, this aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit that I think we need to think about more often. We think that the Holy Spirit is obligated to regenerate if he works. Not so. The Holy Spirit is sovereign and that was Owen's point. He determines what he is going to do. He is not obligated, right? He is the sovereign spirit, and he works according to his good pleasure. And there is certainly a way in which he can um, give a taste and not regenerate. I think that's what Hebrews 6 uh, is teaching us and the example of Saul. Um, any question? I'm just kidding. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Spirit. We honor him as the, the sovereign Spirit. And, and we do acknowledge that without his work, without him birthing again a person, they remain in their sins and will not know eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment. I pray that you would give us wisdom in, in self-examination. Father, I pray that we would all examine ourselves and see if we pass the test. And certainly in our witness with others, I pray that we would, we would be hopeful, that we would be willing to see the best in every situation, but that we would not be naive. And that we would continue then to persist in sharing the gospel and witnessing to our neighbors and to our friends, to our family members. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.